Howdy, howdy, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner again. So true story. This I'm not making this up. I do not make things up on the radio, at least not on purpose. Well, you make a mistake sometime, right? So my wife and I went to Europe uh, August August 8th through the 18th, I believe. Close, no, August 9th. August 9th through the 18th. We got back from Europe, and it apparently, I live in the Green Bay area, live in Ashwaubenon. Apparently, it had not rained the whole 10 days we left. I mean, our lawn was brown, parched, and we asked people, what the heck? Like, not a drop of rain since we were gone? So it looked like it was in that the lawn, everything. It looked like it was in that it's over mode, right? You know, where psh, that's it. It's, wow, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to bother watering it. So it didn't rain, right, in that 10 days we were in Europe. You can blame me because it are my wife and I and the people we traveled with uh, blame us. It has not stopped raining since we got back. It was into the forecast just now. Uh, it's, it, it's just rain. And by the way, uh, in the northern part of the state, we are not immune from it. We're getting the same thing. It just continues to rain and continues to rain and continues to rain. And in addition to that, I was not ready for this warm weather. I just, look, you get in sweater mode, and you're in sweater mode. I'm sorry, I calibrate that to the calendar. And, and I, by the way, I love sweater weather. I know a lot of people don't. You don't, you don't want to see summer go. I love autumn. I love, we had a couple of days, you know, sunny-ish, 65-ish. I love that stuff. Love it, love it, love it. And boom, I, by the way, I don't mind 80s. Don't, you know, don't misunderstand. But you get in a mode. No, no. I, my, my, my wife and I had the ceremonial changing of the tubs where we put the T-shirts and the shorts and all of that stuff. It's gone. It's in the basement. You can't do that to a guy. Or anybody, for that matter. Anyway, I know, there he is on the radio complaining about 80 degrees in October. He must have something more important to talk about, right? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. And we're going to jump right into a couple of things. I do want to say this. Later in the show, I'm going to have some things to say about some feedback that we at WTMJ received to a segment I did, actually, we did just about an hour, uh, with a guest in there, at Judge, now, excuse me, Justice Kavanaugh. And, well, you've got to make the transition. Justice Kavanaugh. As you can see, I'm, I'm not best with transitions. And we, I said some things, and it's interesting, uh, all over the spectrum, people had some comments. I'm going to share those. We'll get into that. After 1 o'clock, we are going to talk about the U.S. Senate debate. Now, it's interesting. Let me just say this about that for now. Dan Bice of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel tweeted that, uh, in his estimation, Senator Baldwin didn't look... Here's what he said. Dan Bice on Twitter. For someone who has spent her career in state and federal politics... Senator Baldwin should be better on her feet. It was sometimes painful listening to her stop and start and stop and start again during U.S. Senate debate against Leah Vukmir. Uh, it's interesting that that was new to Dan. I will tell you what, I very clearly, vividly recall the 2012 Senate debate. She was not strong presentationally there. The problem was, uh, as I'm just saying, I'm not criticizing, I'm not insulting, 
Tommy Thompson underperformed her. It was not a good night for Tommy. The first debate, at least, I think. Uh, I think it was the WBA, Wisconsin Broadcasters Association debate. Could be wrong about that. But it, it was a tough night for both of them. And as a result, Tammy actually, Senator Baldwin, actually looked pretty, by comparison. So I watched this morning. I did not watch it last night. I watched it online this morning after seeing Dan Bice's comments. And he's absolutely right. Presentationally, Leah Vukmir was much, much stronger. We're going to talk about the very, just some observations, but there was a moment. Was there a moment in that debate? The best moment for Leah Vukmir, the worst moment for Tammy Baldwin, and they are the same moment. We're going to have the audio. We're going to get to that uh, after 1 o'clock. I want to start with uh, a shorty here and then a longer topic. The, this is breaking news, and i got to tell you, it's not a bombshell, but it's a big story, and it's hard to qualify as a big story these days because they just do seem to be falling from the skies. U.N. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, as you very likely or possibly have heard by now, resigned this morning directly to President Donald Trump. Uh, and then Now, this is actually the old story from CNN that I have up here since then. They appeared, and... Uh, It's pretty interesting. Actually, I think it's fascinating because everybody is wondering about the timing. Why now? Why in this way? It seems completely amicable. Here's what's fascinating. Uh, Haley said, well, actually, President Trump said, I stand corrected. President Trump said, hey, she's welcome back in the administration any time. That is um, extremely unusual. And these type of foreshadowing statements by President Trump are almost never empty. Um, above, he does bluff from time to time. But it's hard for him to keep a secret. And I, hmm, but by the way, she made it clear she is not running against him in 2020 in a primary that she, or that she will be campaigning for him. So I'm just based on that, that she would be welcome back, I would... Have to think that's the plan. Now, CNN also points out that with a change at state, with uh, Bolton and Pompeo, that it really diminished her role compared with Tillerson, who was kind of hands-off, camera-shy. She had a bigger role. Don't know. have no idea if that's a factor or not. Speaking of being a factor... In two minutes, I want to tee up something that I just mentioned briefly at the end of yesterday's show and get your calls on it. You may or may not be aware that millennials are, within a year or two, of becoming the largest generation in America by percentage, about 22%. They're about to eclipse us baby boomers. The point of this story is they're not flexing that, that footprint, that population footprint, in political muscle. Why not? I have a theory, and we'll take your theories. Uh, we'll get to that in two minutes. 1216 News Radio, WTMJ. 1219, Jerry in for Jeff. News Radio, WTMJ. CNN. 
Millennials have been dissected, and I mean that societally, just about any way that you can. They just tend to be one of the quirkiest generations, although the boomers were examined. We were looked at every which way, but loose as well. Uh, were they over-pampered, the millennials, helicopter parents? Are they hypersensitive to criticism? All of that has been examined. Now, as they have officially come of age, and there are a couple of different metrics, but generally 1981 to 1995, is what we consider millennials. CNN has a piece pointing out, when you look at what's going to happen in the next year or two, they are expected to become, quite frankly, by attrition, as there are fewer and fewer boomers, they are going to be the largest, by percentage, generation and percentage of population of America. Yet, they are not big-time politically active, and they measure that on two fronts. One, there's not a lot of them seeking public office. Now, your first thought might be, well, they're still kind of young. Yes, but maybe not as young as you think. 1981, hard to believe for those of us who were adults back then. But that is 37 years ago. The oldest are technically old enough to run for president. A big batch of them are old enough to run for Senate and then House, State, and so on. Not saying it isn't happening, but CNN's point is it's not happening as much as one might imagine, given the clout that they have by virtue of their numbers. And the poster person for this, if you will, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a candidate, U.S. House of Representatives. She's the face of this, the uh, very strong, it would appear, socialist agenda. As she puts it, I'm going to make some Democrats mad if they're trying to deliver paydays for Wall Street donors, but that doesn't mean I'm going to burn the house down. CNN's point is, there are not a lot of her. There there really just aren't a lot of millennials stepping into the political fray. Now, there could be any number of reasons for that. I want to throw a couple of things out, and then I want to get your thoughts on this. The obvious reason, I think just that would transcend generations, is look at the blood sport that politics is today. It has always been that, but just it's been, as Spinal Tap would say, turned up to 11. It's just vicious. You saw that in the last couple of weeks, right? But, I mean, even beyond that. So that's one. I have to be careful here. I don't want to overgeneralize. But as a generation, they're also not paying that close attention. They Again, this is a generalization, and I accept and admit that. And I, I'm sure that we'll get some millennials, hey, hey, not me. No, I know, I know. But to speak of a generation, you do have to generalize a bit. I, you know, I debate them, I talk with them a little bit, uh, very you know, it's just the first layer of knowledge on a lot of issues. They haven't dialed in. You know, they, for the most part, came of age in the social media generation. You know, tail end of it, they're, you know, I don't know, what would you want to call that? Early 2000s, they were kids. Some of them, some were older. But they're, they're just getting now, some of them really dialed into understanding and having a grasp of issues. Again, don't 
take that personally. I'm, I'm not. If you're a millennial, I'm not saying every millennial, but I'm saying comparatively the generation. But here's the one that I want to throw to you. They have, again, by virtue of their size, created a dramatic cultural shift. Products are tailored to them. Uh, jobs are tailored to their idiosyncrasies, that they need a lot of positive reinforcement, that they uh, are somewhat surprised to hear criticism, things that didn't happen as they were growing up. So culture is accommodating them to some degree. You do, Hey, you know, this has been talked about for years, how to manage a millennial. It's, it's a different generation in that regard because of the way they were raised. Hypersensitive to a lot of things. High stress. I had a, a millennial, tail end millennial, born in 1995, talk to me about uh, they get sick a lot because of stress. I said, well, it stresses. Oh, just the typical millennial stress. Hmm. I found that interesting. So well, what did we do to you kids? Why, why is that? But here's what I want to throw out to you. And I've kind of walked up to it. Now I'm going to jump over the line. Why get into politics when you are moving the needle culturally by your sheer size? I just gave some examples. Consumerism, just like with the baby boomers, the minivan, uh, loose-fitting jeans, and Viagra. All of that was to make money because there were a lot of baby boomers. Well, the same thing here. Consumerism is now aimed toward them. But beyond that, look at, look at the suddenly speed of light change in LGBTQ issues. The acceptance of gay marriage. Do you realize just six years ago, President Barack Obama's official stance was he opposed it? Just overnight. Why? Because you have this huge block that grew up tolerant of it. And transgender issues. And uh, they're, they're getting a lot of what they want Culturally, And by the way, tip of the hat to talk show host and good friend Josh Duclo, who this morning uh, threw this by me. And I think he I just think he's nailed it. Not that the other factors aren't important factors. I would especially love to hear from millennials on this, but certainly will not limit it to millennials. On the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. They're not getting into politics in large numbers is because they're getting what they want the good old-fashioned way, cultural shift. We'll see what you think straight ahead. 1226 News Radio WTMJ. All the Brewers now know it will be the Los Angeles Dodgers who they'll face in the NLCS. How much different will Craig Council's roster look come Friday night? Greg Matzik takes a guess on Brewers tonight starting at 6.07. We are taking your calls uh, CNN points out millennials are not getting into politics. I think a big reason why is they're getting their way through cultural shifts. So why run for office or even vote? To uh, John in Madison, John, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. You know, all your points I think are valid. Uh, one of the things I've dealt with a lot of millennials. I'm 62 years old, so I've got about, but I have dealt with a lot of millennials, and uh, I remember there were two big economic. Uh, blow-ups in, in these people's lives. Uh, one was around 2000, uh, and then the other one was uh, about 10 years ago. 
So the incentive for them has kind of gone away. In fact, some of them are questioning capitalism. The other comment that I have to make is that a boomer such as myself, I deal with, for example, a lot, I dealt with a lot of school systems around the country. And boomers were holding on to their job to collect their pension, holding back the, the millennials from taking over their jobs. And I know that's created frustration also from millennials. All right, John, thanks a lot for the call, John. Do appreciate it. We are tight on time here. We will definitely continue the conversation after the noon. Brenton and Milwaukee, please don't go anywhere. It looks like you have excellent points. You want to, want to get to them right after the news. But while well, the preseason rolls on as your Milwaukee Bucks continue their preparations for the 2018-19 NBA season, next up, a matchup with the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Voice of the Bucks, Ted Davis, on the call. And our coverage starts with Buckshot's 6.30 tonight. Taking your calls, why aren't millennials more engaged politically? CNN had a piece on this, and the, and the face of it is a very now famous millennial, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, why not more of her? More getting, I think one theory, and there are a lot, I think one theory is millennials are getting their way a lot in cultural shift, and they're risk-averse Remember the stories a few years ago where they wouldn't take sales jobs so people might say no to me. Now imagine going out trying to get votes. I, a lot of factors. To Brenton in Milwaukee, Brenton, thanks for waiting. I earned WTMJ. Yeah, hi. I just want to talk about like the stress and kind of like, you know, being apathetic towards politics. I guess yeah. it comes it stems from like maybe being raised and growing up in a time where like politicians can't seem to agree on anything or compromise or having bitter partisan battles and growing up in an atmosphere like that, it kind of deflates you, I guess. Um, not growing up in a time where people work together to come to conclusions and have the best interest in, in the whole. So I guess well, that, would that would be one thing. Yep. Would you say this, Brenton? Yeah. Would you say that they are, as a generation, conflict-averse, that they try to avoid conflict? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm on the cusp of the millennial. I think I'm, like, one year early. Um, I own a house, unlike a lot of my friends, and I, you know, I save up and I, I plan. <laughs> but I have a lot of friends that are stressed out, and they have jobs where it's, like, you know, there's that, um, you know, inflation every year is, like, over 2%, and, like, the, the wage gap, uh, the earnings are less and less, it seems. A lot of these friends of mine have huge student debt. You know, you hear your parents saying, oh, I used to pay for college uh, for my summer job. So there's a lot of factors that vary into it. I feel a lot of times you just kind of feel left out of the conversation. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, sometimes you feel sorry for yourself a little too much, too. Brenton, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, those are some excellent points, and I think we've had some really excellent points on this. Uh, you know, an earlier caller didn't hang around but pointed out that, uh, you know, they've, they've seen a lot of economic upheaval in their lifetimes. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that plays into it or not. Uh, what I would say is they are, even at this late date, and by this late date, you've got some who are pushing 40, uh, it is very hard to get a handle on what motivates them. And I think one of the things you do see, I think the uh, desire to be heard by protest and that sort of thing, that's certainly not unique to their generation, but I think their generation in particular sees that as a way of getting things done. Now, it's going to be interesting to see if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
candidate in the New York House race, what difference she might make. She has become very high profile. She, uh, you know, she says she's, she's definitely going to do things differently than Democrats are used to seeing them done within that party, but she's not trying to burn the house down. But the track record of millennials culturally is they do push pretty hard for what they want. This is a good conversation. I don't know that there's a right answer. I don't know necessarily that there is a wrong answer for the most part. Nothing, almost nothing in this life happens for one reason. That's, that's a principle I live by very strongly. But I think that the concept that they, that they're just getting a lot of stuff done the way it is in terms of how they like things, their comfort zone, their comfort level. The way they like the world to be, they're they're a force to be reckoned with that way. But they haven't really pushed it at the voting booth or in running for public office. Now, the other thing I would throw in there is they're still pretty young. They are still definitely, uh, you know, the youngest are 23-ish. One of my millennials turns 23 this month. So I, I don't know, you know, which, it's probably all of the above. To Paul in New Hampshire. Paul, go ahead. Hey, Jerry, so glad to hear you again, man. I miss, I miss hearing you on, you know, your other show from before. Anyways, um, yeah, I'm, I'm 30 years old. When I was a kid, I was always into school politics. I, I thought when I grew up, I would get into it, but... As I got older and I matured, my views kind of changed where I didn't really fit into a two-party system. I think myself and I, I think a lot of people my age don't necessarily think of themselves as a Republican or a Democrat. You know, I feel very strongly against abortion, but I also think that marijuana should be legal. So those are just two kind of polar opposite views that I find myself in the middle of. That's an excellent, excellent point, that they are a, they're a tough species to figure out politically and here's the other thing paul and you being in the middle of it what's your take on this that as a, again as a generation they tend to be a bit more well actually quite a bit more socially liberal but fiscally conservative yes i believe it. i i think a lot of people would you know as far as definition goes maybe find themselves as libertarians um and i definitely agree with, with what you just said Paul, thanks a lot, and listen, I really appreciate the call, and thanks a lot for for finding me here on TMJ. One more call on this. Uh, Let's go to Lisa in Milwaukee. She's got a really good point. Lisa, go ahead. I think this generation has uh, lacked the teaching of civics education that we all got and how important it is to vote and how important um, service in general is. Um, You don't see a lot of a lot of younger people volunteering, um, like us older folks do. Uh, I, we, we struggle in some of the functions that I volunteer for, finding younger people to take the time out and, and realize that there is such a gift and you feel so much better after service. Um, I think they just miss, somehow they're missing that concept. Lisa, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 48. Okay. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. I, I think I got to tell you, uh, I, I've I got to tell you, 
I, I really think... Oh, hang on a second. We're going to have to do something about the phone in the studio that I'm doing the show from. There we go. Uh, anyway, uh, I think when you look at the education, I don't want this to be a blast on the entire education system. I have struck up a friendship with a higher-end millennial. And we had a conversation, and she was embarrassed by what she didn't know. I tried to walk her through it. I was trying to mentor, not judge. But constitutional issues and basic civics. So I think the, the caller had that just about spot on. With that, we're going to move on to other things. Um, we actually, and that's not a bad thing at all, we went longer on that than I anticipated. So I've got to take a look and see what I have the agenda here. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't tell you. But I'm sure it's brilliant. I'm not saying it's brilliant. Other people are saying it's brilliant. I'm not saying that. A lot of people have, all right, you don't want, you don't want to go with that. Whatever it is, we'll get to in two minutes. It's 1243 WTMJ. 1246, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner, News Radio WTMJ. All this is day two uh, in uh, on WTMJ all this week. And uh, that includes yesterday, of course. So let's talk about yesterday. Spent an hour on a lot of issues, a lot of topics, elements, angles, to the Brett Kavanaugh story. Now, Justice Kavanaugh. And it's the first opportunity I've had on a radio microphone, on an actual radio station, to express my views. And I did. My views are this. Like many conservatives, and like many Republican senators, uh, I found Dr. Ford credible. I'm not saying anything that Congressman, House member, Sean Duffy didn't say on this radio station yesterday with Steve Scafidi. What he said is that he found them both Compelling, both credible. I know he said credible. I think he said compelling. But he felt the tie went to the man who led an exemplary life. I found that an interesting divider. But he made it very clear he believed something happened. Something happened to Dr. Ford. The default position of Republicans who felt compelled to vote for Brett Kavanaugh was, I don't think it's him, though. I believe that something happened to her, she's just got the wrong guy. There are some who think that's as insulting as saying she's lying. But that is, a lot of Republicans in Senate in the Senate said that. Leah Vukmir said that last night. Now, what I also said that rankled some people is, I did have some issues with Justice Kavanaugh's testimony. And I, I just don't think that his explanation of his college-age drinking is credible. That prompted both emails and voicemails to folks here at WTMJ. I want to start with one of the emails. Bader believes Ford credible. BS, false narrative. Trojan horse plant all along. Doesn't remember anything that's not written out for her by her handlers. Bader falls hook, line, and sinker for a non-event fabricated story. So has almost every Republican member in, in the Senate, then. Dave? Not just Dave is his first name. Dave, then so is just about every Republican in the U.S. Senate that voted 
for him because they believe something happened to her. They believe she's credible. They don't believe she's a plant. So you think that every Republican that voted for her fell hook, line, and sinker. Because that's not a position unique or even rare on the right. That's been the default standard, so she isn't called a liar. Which, again, I I think it's problematic. So that's the first one. Accepting that she was credible, accepting that something happened to her, that's, uh, again, no one who voted in the U.S. Senate, I think, on the Republican side, said she was lying, that she was a plant. So they all fell for it, Dave? The, the, the part that I put out there that others don't is I, I think his testimony was problematic. Then we got another reaction. We got a voicemail. And I, I will just say this. It is a powerful, powerful voicemail. Management received a voicemail from a listener, a woman, who shared that many years ago she was sexually assaulted. And she heard two words from me. Women lie. Now, I don't know how closely she was listening. Those two words out of context are powerful. Powerfully wrong, but powerful. In context, they go like this. Again, I got lit up by people texting because I found Dr. Ford credible. I still find her credible. Unlike the president, who praised her testimony and is now calling her a fraud, a phony, and and apologized to Justice Kavanaugh. He's done what he always does. Just blows in the wind. For a while, Donald Trump, President Trump, sounded just like me. But now that's not where he is, because... All of his positions tend to be in quicksand. I do want to say to the listener, and I, and I won't use your first name, I found Dr. Ford credible. I believe all accusers should be heard and not disbelieved. Some women lie. And I also said it is a very small percentage Research bears that out. But it would be naive to think every woman in the history of the world who ever made an allegation of sexual assault was telling the truth. I mean, we just know that's not true. There was a relatively recent and relatively high-profile case, I believe, I want to say Dallas, but I'm pretty sure it was the Texas area, where a woman lied about the actions of an officer. It does happen, but it's rare. My point was, there is a movement afoot to say that the accusation is in and of itself proof of guilt, more in the court of law than what we were talking about here. And that can't stand, because then our entire judicial system crumbles. So yes, women should not be disbelieved. They should be taken very seriously as their claims are investigated. And ma'am, you are right. There was a time when they weren't believed at all, and men could get away with it just about with impunity. You're absolutely right. I, I could not agree with you more. 
which is why I, I felt that what Democrats did in creating the situation they did was, uh, particularly Senator Feinstein, a disservice to Dr. Ford, a disservice to uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and a disservice to the entire system, to justice and to the public. But no, I did not say all women lie. I would never suggest such a thing. I wouldn't say most women lie. I wouldn't say many women lie. Two words can be powerful, especially taken out of context. That's why I took the opportunity to put them in context. 1254 News Radio, WTMJ. Hall of Famer Bob Euchre is the voice of your Milwaukee Brewers right here on WTMJ. John Mercure introduces you now to the man who makes Mr. Baseball's work possible. Hear that interesting conversation at 3.30 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. After 1 o'clock, I, uh, I missed a text on the millennial topic that I have to share with you. I've got to double back on it, but I don't want to break the stream of where I'm at right now. So we'll get to that after 1 o'clock, and then we're going to get into the uh, Senate debate as well. But I want to finish what I was talking about where I, I revisited some comments that I made yesterday and reaction we got to them concerning Brett Kavanaugh, then Justice Kavanaugh, then there is this. Alaska Republican Party leaders plan to consider whether to reprimand U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski for opposing Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. The party has asked Murkowski to provide any information she might want uh, its state central committee to consider. Wow. Wow. Prove that you didn't betray us. Prove that you had a good reason for voting your conscience. I don't care if you disagree with Lisa Murkowski and her vote. You have to understand the danger in that. Party Chairman Tuckerman Babcock says the committee could decide to issue a statement, or he says it could withdraw support of Murkowski, encourage party officials to look for a replacement, and ask that she not seek re-election as a Republican. No mention of the optional reorientation camp. That's, that's, I'm just telling you. By the way, Susan Collins, for her yes vote, also being horribly, horribly mistreated by those on the left who, she's been as open-minded as any Republican in the U.S. Senate. But it apparently is just never enough. Two people who won, who wants to stay in the Senate and one who wants to get to the Senate debated last night. A lot of stuff to talk about there. A great moment that we'll have the audio after one. 1259 News Radio WTMJ. One oh nine, howdy howdy, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. In this hour, we are going to discuss the U.S. Senate debate from last night. And some other things. I want to start, though, with some cleanup from last hour. Two texts that I didn't get to on separate topics. We talked about millennials and why they could flex muscle there just on the cusp of becoming the, by percentage, biggest generation in America. But they're not really dialed in. Two emails, uh, or rather two texts, 
as a 30-year-old millennial, I have slowly witnessed positions in politics turn from leaders to scapegoats. Anyone who's ever read The Whipping Boy understands why millennials aren't so quick to jump into a position of political power. Then there's this one. And I, I think this one's really interesting. Millennial here, we didn't get married, have kids, and start careers as young as you old-timers. Hey, dude, I resemble that remark. We're still young, but we're coming. They have delayed adulthood again as a generation. I'm not, I am generalizing, but I understand it is a generalization. I think it's a good point. Then there's this one. I mentioned that I found Dr. Christine Blasey Ford credible, and so did every Republican who voted for Justice Kavanaugh. They said that, but didn't believe he was the guy. Not that she was making it up out of whole cloth. Listen to this. The only reason the Republicans are saying that, this is a text from the 262, the only reason the Republicans are saying that is because they had elections coming up and they need the votes. There was no shed of proof at all that he had done anything. It was a disgrace. Her testimony was all lies. That that he accepts the jaded cynicism is beyond saddening to me. So he believes none of the Republican senators that said that believe that. He thinks they felt they were compelled to do that because it would be politically disastrous to call her a liar. Well, the president is. So here's what's going to be interesting. The president now has just gone totally off the deep end in terms of not worrying about what people think anymore. He was very tempered, very measured at first. Now he's like, eh. No, they they all libeled him, and he did not seem to separate Dr. Ford from that. He slowly morphed it, then he mocked her and everything else. Yet Republicans, no, she's credible. And this texter, wow, they just, they had to do that. Wow, man. It's interesting that you just accept that. Ah, look, I get it. There's an election coming up. They all had to lie through their teeth. That, that is an interesting commentary on modern politics. It, it truly, truly is. Do you know what schadenfreude is? Schadenfreude is taking delight in the misery of others. We have a schadenfreude story, a schadenfreude story that involves the Milwaukee Brewers. We'll get to it in two minutes. 113 News Radio WTMJ. 116 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff Wagner. So... Earlier this morning, Charlie Sykes retweeted Peter Baker, and Charlie added, not a parody. White House Press Secretary confirms that Trump will have lunch with Kanye. Topics of discussions will include manufacturing, resurgence in America, the manufacturing resurgence in America, prison reform, how to prevent gang violence, and what can be done. I have nothing to add to that. Now, to the Schadenfreude topic. This from USA Today, I believe, yesterday. The Milwaukee Brewers should send Derek Jeter a case of spotted cow and some bratwurst. Throw in some cheese curds, too. Let me stop there. True story. All right, so my schedule is a little messed up with doing the show this week. 
Uh, I do have a day job, mediatrackers.org, so I have to get there a lot earlier than I normally do. And this, honestly, I didn't even think it was possible. My wife texted me. We do, we do protein shakes for breakfast, and I usually make hers. Well, she saw she didn't have a shake. I don't normally leave the house at her, at least so she texted me. Hey, did you do your shake? Oh. Well, I had a very light lunch. It's now one seventeen, and my stomach is well aware. So when a story starts with brats and cheese curds, I am now I'm just getting really hungry. Anyway, enough of that. Because I don't... Uh, the author writes, the Brewers should send Derek Jeter that. Now, I either didn't know this or forgot this, that the former Yankees great is now in the front office of the Miami Marlins, CEO. I, I, if I knew that, I forgot it. This is about Christian Yelich. By trading Christian Yelich to the Brewers in January for four prospects, Jeter single-handedly changed the course of Milwaukee's season this year. Might have shifted the balance in the NL Central for the next couple of years, too. Yelich is hitting 400 with a homer and two RBIs in the NL Division Series. Man, I, I, I don't think, I didn't think it was that good. Now, she wrote this in the middle of the series as the Brewers are heading west to, to uh, Colorado, to Denver, for, with the 2-0 lead. And they have Jeter to thank for all of it. The Yankees' great is now CEO of the Miami Marlins, and he's, well, no one's quite sure what he's doing with that sad sack franchise. Well, shipping Giancarlo Stanton to the Yankees was somewhat understandable at the time, given the monster contract last season's MVP had. The deal looks horrible now. Stanton, 38 homers, 100 RBIs. Uh, Yelich, she writes, though, might turn out to be the biggest regret of Jeter, uh, Jeter's career as an executive. Granted, Yelich wasn't Yelich when Jeter sent him to the Brewers for four prospects in January. Uh, he had, however, won a silver slugger in 2016, had 18 homers, 81 ribbies, 16 stolen bases. So he at least should have given Jeter pause, which should have, before giving Yelich away. Now he's going to be giving Jeter heartburn. You know, it is so easy to second-guess those. It, it, it just, it really is. I... I Here's what I would say. I don't want to say that she overstates the impact of Yelich, because I, I don't think she does. I, I I mean, the Brewers, in my estimation, are a year ahead of where I thought they were going to be, even with Christian Yelich. I thought they were going to, going to take that step. I thought they were going to be what the Cubs were this year. They maybe, maybe sneak in. Uh It'll be tied and then lose the game to the Cubs. I did see it that close. I thought they might win the could win the division, but I thought more wild card. And then maybe they don't even win the wild card game, or maybe they bow out of the NLDS. That's kind of where I thought the Brewers were. So, does did Yelich elevate them to legitimate World Series contenders, which we now know they are? Well, I think the answer to that, I mean. He was a huge part of it. Here's the way you always look at it. If he's not there, do they win 96 games and sweep the NLDS? I just think the answer is obviously no. I, I, I just don't know 
how you could conceivably say anything else. But in terms of those four prospects, only time will tell, but she is right. I mean, boy, he'd have to strike downright gold at at least one, maybe two, especially if Yelich remains Yelich, and they've got him for a couple of years. And in terms of shifting the balance of power, eh, you know, it all depends what other teams do after this season, what the Brewers do to grow. They're, they're still in a rebuild, at least on, you know, according to the schedule. They're just ahead of schedule. All right, without further ado, in two minutes, we will, in fact, uh, begin our discussion on the U.S. Senate debate from last night and some powerful, powerful audio. 121 News Radio WTMJ. 124-ish. News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff Wagner. Uh, through Thursday. And then actually some flopola going on with the whole Brewers shindig, which you'll be hearing more about. But I am here, as they say in Vegas, I'm here all week. Try the veal. There's no veal. But you can see I'm still obsessed with food. Uh, all right. Last night was the first U.S. Senate debate between... Uh, Leah Vukmir, state senator, Republican challenger, and incumbent Tammy Baldwin. The first, now, I did not watch it last night. I watched it this morning. And before I watched it, I saw this tweet from the Journal Sentinel's Dan Bice. For someone who has spent her career in state and federal politics, Senator Baldwin should be better on her feet. It was sometimes painful listening to her stop and start and stop and start again during U.S. Senate debate against Leah Vukmir. And uh, then you have... The Leah defenders, I would rather have at, or I'm sorry, the Tammy defenders. Uh, I would rather have at Tammy Baldwin, who is a calm, dignified thinker. She considers what she wants to express. Uh, ah, yes, because the measure of a good public servant should be how polished they are for the camera. No, she she really struggled with content as well. I, I So, you know, I, my opinion was jaded going in by what Bice wrote, but I do agree And I remember back to 2012, she was not strong in presentation then either, but Tommy Thompson really had a rough night. And and her Republican challenger, that go-round. So I don't think it stuck out as much. But but definitely rough. Now, they talked about a lot of different things. The organizers of the debate focused a lot on health care. And here's where, I don't know if this is what Bice was talking about, but I can tell you, I, I felt they, this was the one part where both were a little evasive and, and not answering a direct question. But for the most part, I truly felt that it, in that particular issue, Leah Vukmir, the presentation part of it, actually helped a lot. I just she seemed more confident, she was more aggressive, more assertive in responding to things that Baldwin said. Now I would say that was true in pretty much all of the different facets that they talked and debated about. Here's the way I would do this. On style points, in other words, presentational skills, making points directly answering questions, I would definitely, definitely give the edge 
to Leah Vukmir. I, I, now, I, I know I'm a conservative, and blah, yeah, you're just... No, I'm telling you, if I, and I have done this before. If I think a Republican or a conservative has lost a debate or performed badly in any way, I'll do that. Anyone knows the opinions I've expressed over the last three years as to where the president is concerned, I'm not afraid to criticize someone with an R behind their name if, it's, if they're worthy of criticism. I thought she performed well, and I thought she performed quite a bit better, that Leah did, than Tammy Baldwin. And I think that, quite frankly, Dan Bice got that right. What I would say... This is what she, you know, he said she should be better on her feet. The way his uh, Twitter critics took that was just not polished, not smooth in delivery. Well, that is true. Leah Vukmir was much smoother. I do think in many instances she was better on substance. But boy, was there a moment in that debate. Before I get to that, there was also, uh, I don't remember how long, like four minutes, something like that. They let them go after each other. And that was interesting. Debates should be more like that. Because, and I def, I will tell you this, that, that one-on-one round, Leah Vukmir soundly won that one. But then there was another issue. And that issue is abortion, but there was a very specific question the specific question was now they said late term abortion the person asking I I believe oh no I could be wrong I'm not going to say which uh, oh I know it was was the gentleman from public radio and I don't know his name but in any regard in, in any event the question was Late term, not partial birth. There are those of us who feel that late term is often a euphemism for partial birth abortions. I happen to be one of those people. Now, the answer given by Tammy Baldwin was, in my opinion, just completely evasive. She she talked about abortion rights, talked about a woman's right to choose and all of that. Then, after that, Leah Vukmir responded. After the news, we're going to play the whole thing. We're going to play the question, Baldwin's response, and then Vukmir's response. This is powerful, powerful stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, the preseason rolls on as your Milwaukee Bucks continue their preparations for the 2018-19 NBA season. Next up, a matchup with the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Voice of the Bucks, Ted Davis on the call, and our coverage starts with Buckshots at 6.30 tonight. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner, 1.35. So we were talking about the U.S. Senate debate, and just before the news, I teased some audio that we'll be playing. The question put before the two candidates, incumbent Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin and Republican challenger State Senator Leah Vukmir, was on late term abortions, which is often translated as partial birth abortions. All right, now, we're going to play the question and Baldwin's response, and then I'm going to comment, and then we're going to play Leah Vukmir's response. Kyle, go ahead. What is your position on late-term abortions? Uh, We'll start with you, Ms. Baldwin. 
Um, I support a woman's right to choose. I don't believe that government should interfere with a woman's health or whether or when she should have a child. I also believe that my opponent has been at the very extreme of this issue. She has supported legislation that would ban in vitro fertilization, that would ban access to some forms of contraception, and would ban stem cell research that is, causing, is providing life-saving treatments and ultimately potentially cures. So I strongly oppose any limitations like defunding Planned Parenthood where so many women and men seek diagnostic care and primary health care. I believe that a woman should make her health care decisions. Senator Baldwin said quite a bit there. What she didn't do, though, is directly answer the question. She evaded, I think for obvious reasons, what her position on late-term abortions are. Because, quite frankly, as abortion issues go, and there's the abortion issue, and which is an umbrella over a myriad abortion issues, at least now I haven't seen a survey on this, but the concept of late-term partial birth abortions was pretty unpopular across the board. So she talked about other issues. She talked about, in general, a woman's right to choose. She didn't touch late-term abortion. She did. She did refer to Leah Vukmir's position on the larger abortion, the umbrella issue, as being extreme. Leah Vukmir saw an opportunity and took it. Here it is. I am 100% pro-life. I am a nurse. I can't even imagine not being pro-life. You want to talk about extreme, Senator Baldwin? Extreme is voting for a partial birth abortion. It is the most disgusting thing that can happen, that the arms and legs of a baby are pulled out of their mother. The brain is sucked out. That is vile. And you talk about a woman's right to choose. It's a woman's right to kill her baby. It's wrong. That is extreme, Senator Baldwin. I will never forget as a young nurse holding a 24-week-old baby in my hands in a neonatal intensive care unit, and I saw that tiny heart beating so rapidly under that thin chest wall, and that life was trying to hang on in that neonatal intensive care unit, and we were working hard to save its life. And Tammy Baldwin would rip that life out of a mother just like that and snuff that life out. It's wrong. It's wrong. And you voted for that, Senator Baldwin. That is your vote. Wow. I, I mean, wow. The content, the manner, the passion with which it was delivered. Tammy Baldwin did what those who support abortion rights do with this issue. They try to ignore it. You have to understand there's a way that people who support abortion rights sleep at night. It's out of sight, out of mind. I don't. I want to stick with that clump of tissue meme, thank you very much. It's not a baby. During this debate, Leah Vukmir several times invoked or evoked her experience as a nurse. 
never more effectively or powerfully there. And she got the last word on that. I am told that you could pretty much hear gasps in the audience when she, when she made that case. Now, here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that there were I'm just I'm just telling you. There are people who support abortion rights who were sitting in that auditorium who didn't believe a word of that. They weren't gasping because they were disgusted by it. They were gasping because they were disgusted that she would tell such lies. I guarantee it. How many? I don't know. With everything that has happened in politics in the last few years, abortion has fallen far down the public agenda in terms of being discussed, being talked about. It was reignited, of course, with Brett Kavanaugh. That brought it back to the forefront, which is why I applaud this question being asked, because it's not the typical, well, what do you have to say about this, that, or, you know, where are you on abortion? Should Roe v. Wade be overturned? It wasn't that. It was a more specific question. And I will tell you, and this might be what Dan Bice was talking about, Tammy Baldwin was not ready for that question. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Now, here's what I also predict. Because I, there are still those who think that partial birth abortions are mythical. They're not real. Well, that vote that, that Leah Bukmir referred to is real. This procedure is real. I remember the whole debate about this. First, it didn't happen. And then when they had to concede that these procedures do happen... Well, the baby doesn't feel it because of the anesthesia. Well, guess what happened then? Women who intend on having their babies. Hey, whoa, what? Hmm? Excuse me? A local anesthetic impacts my baby that way? Well, then what was the next morphing of the debate? Well, they don't feel pain. They, they just don't feel pain. Now, it's interesting. Tammy Baldwin didn't try any of those. That was a powerful, powerful moment. One, for the way that Leigh Vukmir delivered it. But two, it wasn't the only evasive... And, and I, I also would say that Leah had a couple of evasive moments of her own. But on balance, I felt that Senator Baldwin evaded more often, but never more broadly than she did to that question. And... Uh, never more disastrously, disastrously than in that moment. A couple of other thoughts on the debate is in two minutes. 143 News Radio WTMJ. 146 News Radio WTMJ. Every Brewer's Story, in-depth game coverage, podcast, ticket links, galleries. Find everything Brewer's on their hunt for the first World Series title on your mobile device. Text Brewer's to 414-799-1620 for the latest on the crew. Man, I was 21. <laughs> I was 21 the last time the Brewer's went to the World Series. I was in college. I remember my dorm room, UW Oshkosh. Wow. I just, and I, and I really didn't think it was going to be 
what is that, 37 years? 36 years, sorry. 36 years? Wow. It's so close. It's so close. All right, some final thoughts on the U.S. Senate debate. Yesterday, we had a Republican strategist, Mark Grohl, Wisconsin Republican strategist on, and his take was, okay, this, this debate isn't heavily watched. Therefore, he didn't assign a lot of impact to it. I somewhat agree and somewhat disagree. I agree it's not widely watched, but oftentimes you can get effective campaign ads out of it. The deer in the headlights moment for Tammy Baldwin on the abortion issue that we just talked about, late term or partial birth abortions, I, I think could be juxtaposed with Leah Bukmir's response. Now, I understand that you could say, I, I, there are those for years, Jerry, stop talking about abortion from conservatives. It's not doing us any favors. I would move on from that issue. Well, you saw it front and center with the Supreme Court. That's what is. That's why this thing went nuclear. He's going to be the vote that overturns Roe v. Wade. So it's back. It's back on the front burner. And I think that is a powerful moment. On balance, I give the victory to Leah Buchner. Now, here's what's going to be interesting to see as we are approaching the latest Marquette University Law School poll. In the last poll, Senator Baldwin had a commanding lead. I believe it was 13 points. Not sure, but I'm pretty sure that it was 13 points. It's going to be fascinating to see Given what's happened, and, and I do believe that there has been an energizing of the conservative base with the Supreme Court debate, it's going to be very interesting to see what the next MU Law School poll looks like. Now, Friday at MediaTrackers.org, I broke a story, and it's an, I understand it's an internal poll, and I can't explain everything on the air, but you can go to MediaTrackers.org. It's not your ordinary, run-of-the-mill internal poll. It's got some chops to it. But yes... It's from the, the Leah Vukmir side of things. So, uh, okay, an internal poll in that regard is what it is. It showed, a, think, a 2.6 deficit for Leah Vukmir. I am not going to be shocked at all to learn that the race has tightened. It may not be reflected as that tight, and I don't know when they were out in the field when it's going to be for the latest MU Law School poll. Don't know. But it is going to be very, very Interesting to see how that race is tightened, uh, how that plays elsewhere in races, the governor's race. That was tight, tighter. What was that, seven? I think it was seven last time. I'm not, I'm not sure that Tony Evers was leading Governor Scott Walker. But I, I, think, I think it was. You have to understand, if Baldwin continues to hold a strong lead, what that means is, when you look at split tickets, that would be people who vote for Tammy Baldwin and vote for Scott Walker. If she were to continue to hold a 13-point lead over Leah Vukmir, that's tough. I, to believe that Scott Walker could overcome that in terms of Baldwin voters who would split and vote for Scott Walker and not Tony Evers, that's, that is a large hill to climb. So if it has closed the way that that one modeling suggests, 
And again, I, I understand it's, it's not an objective poll, but I can tell you, and you can read more at mediatrackers.org, there is reason to believe that the race has tightened, even though it is a poll from one of the candidates, uh, you know, from their camp, if you will. And obviously that translates to the whole broader picture. I still think the House is in severe jeopardy for Republicans. I, I do think they're going to lose the House. We'll see. Two things are going to factor into that. One is, does the enthusiasm from this win wear off in three weeks? And does the anger grow? And what do Democrats do with that anger? Do they protest? Do they play into the angry mob mantra that the president is putting out there? Or do they channel that in more productive ways? If they do, I think they benefit from this defeat. If it's channeled into electoral energy, then I think Democrats benefit. Then you have to factor in early voting, too. I think there's a chance this is going to be closer, though, uh, in those two statewide races than people would have guessed. I, if, if Republicans hold on to the House, that will be, I think, a major, major upset. I do think they have improved their chances at the moment to retain the Senate. But we'll see. 153, News Radio, WTMJ. 155, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. So i got to mention something. Well, actually, I want to do two things here. We're going to do both in the next hour. But I'm going to set one of them up. That in a moment. First, yesterday was an opportunity for Wisconsin to celebrate a hero. And we didn't. You know why? Because I don't think very many people know about her. Who she is or what she did and what makes her a hero. What makes her a hero, there was a recognition of it yesterday. But very few people, I do know of one media outlet that did mention her name. Very heroic and and completely, uh, well, I shouldn't say completely, largely unnoticed by history. We'll get to that after 2 o'clock, but we're going to start the next hour with this. And here's what I want to do. This is actually, I look at the agenda and I've got time to do this, so we're going to do this. Okay? Alaska Republican Party leaders plan to consider whether to reprimand U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski. I did mention this earlier, but I want to share more of the story with you. For opposing Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, the party has asked Murkowski to provide any information she might want its state central committee to consider. Party Chairman Tuckerman Babcock says the committee could decide to issue a statement or he says it could withdraw support of Murkowski, encourage party officials to look for a replacement, and ask that she not seek re-election as a Republican. He says the party took that more extreme step previously with state, legis- state legislators who caucused with Democrats. He says all this follows outrage from Alaska Republicans. Murkowski told reporters that if she worried about political repercussions, she wouldn't be able to do the job Alaskans expect her to do. So basically what they're going to do, and as HotAir.com put it yesterday, Sarah Palin can see the year 2020 from her house. What they're going to do is support someone else in a primary run against Murkowski, 
reprimand her. Well, I, I shouldn't say that's what they're going to do. That's one of the options they could do. They haven't decided what they're going to do yet. Okay? So, at least as far as I know, uh, this is from yesterday afternoon. I don't know that they've done anything. So I have a question for you. And I am not, when we return to this, about 207, I am not going to tell you how I feel on this. I want to see what you think. I know that Steve Scafidi, earlier today on WTMJ, had a great conversation about ideological intolerance that conservatives face. I guess you could say the shoe's on the other foot here, even though she is a Republican. What do you think the Republican Party of Alaska, if anything, should do to Lisa Murkowski? I think it is a fascinating, fascinating topic. We'll see what you think coming up in the next hour. 159 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Because this is the way things, uh, this is the way life goes, I guess. I'm not going to whine about it. I have a social engagement. Actually, my wife and I are going to a concert. So I'm going to record game one of the NLCS. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to evade the score. I'm not going to do that. But, you know, it turns out to be a great game, then I can at least watch it or review it or hear about a great play. Or, you know, but if it's in the news that there's this incredible play, that sort of thing, uh, then I will be able to go back and watch it. I am a Brewers fan, but I will admit I'm much more of a football fan in general than baseball. But uh, the playoffs, even without the Brewers, I, I do love the baseball playoffs. And uh, this is... As, I think I'm anticipating the NLCS as much as I would an NFC Championship game. It's different, though, because it's spread out. And each game has a different feel than a conference championship game in football. On the other hand, football has a lot of things. The one thing it doesn't have is a Game 7. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping we don't have a Game 7 in a good way. But I, this is the most, anti- I just I cannot wait for them to start. But I'm going to really enjoy the concert. My wife and I are looking forward to it. And uh, if there's something to watch, then, then I'll watch it. All right. Let's tee this up on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. This is one of those where I'm going to refrain from what I think. The Republican Party of Alaska is considering reprimanding Senator Lisa Murkowski for not supporting Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. And they're telling, hey, you can make a case to us. You can, that's fine. Tell us why we shouldn't punish you. The punishment could be as light as issuing a statement saying, Senator Mikowski, we disagree with you. Or something, or I don't know. I have no idea what that statement would sound like. Or they could do something far more extreme encourage party officials to look for a replacement, and ask that she not seek re-election as a Republican. And they did do that recently with state legislative Republicans who caucused with Democrats. So here is my question to you, and I do not want to tip my hand at this time. And I, So I'm not going to disagree with you, but I may be probative in terms of why you think what you think. 
what you think. Hmm? What do you think? Again, the uh, Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620. Here's really your options. They could go with the lenient punishment. Uh, I guess the equivalent of a, a letter in her official record or something. Or they could actually say, you know what, we are going to encourage the party to find someone to replace you. Uh, you know, she still has the right to run. So what they're saying is they would support another candidate. And, of course, the name that keeps popping up is Sarah Palin. We would support someone else. Do you agree with punishing her at all, if you're the Republican Party, for a vote? Do you agree with, if you do, do you agree with the more lenient punishment or severe, basically disowning her, saying, you know what, we are going in another direction. 414-799-1620. We do have a text on this. After all, it is the talk and text line. Patrick from Fond du Lac says nothing. They should do absolutely nothing. If she doesn't vote on party lines, she doesn't. I want politicians that listen to their constituents. If she voted because of her constituents, even better. But the party should do nothing and move on. Now, this is where it always gets a little tricky. Patrick makes an interesting point there. What is the eternal debate? Okay, What if what a politician thinks is the right thing to do does not comport with what a majority of his or her constituents feel? What what should they do? Should Lisa Murkowski just simply be a rubber stamp? Okay, I'll just poll my constituents and see what they want, and then I'll do that. Or do you elect people to make decisions? And if they make decisions you don't like, they suffer the consequences. Now, what the party is claiming here, the Republican Party of Alaska is claiming, well, yeah, but this is because people are so mad at her. So we are going to facilitate... Someone else. Again, I'm withholding my opinion on this because I just I want to take the temperature of the audience. 414-799-1620. To Phyllis in Lake Geneva. Phyllis, you're on yes. WTMJ. Yes, I'm on. I'm here. I'm here, and I'm saying that the Republican Party needs to applaud her. She deserves they, a bouquet they, of flowers. Why, why is that, Phyllis? Because she knows she is looking at this credential, and she's making value. She's not going along with the crowd. And I agree with her totally. And I'd like to ask her to come to my party. All right, Phyllis, thanks a lot for the call. Struggling a little bit there. It could be my failing ears. But I think we had a, a little bit of an iffy connection there. But she did feel that the party should, in fact, support Lisa Murkowski. To Scott in Wauwatosa. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking the call. In this particular case, with this particular elected official, the party should, the Republican Party should distance themselves from her. 
she wasn't she wasn't elected. Uh, she she lost the primary in her district. Mm-hmm. She was, it was a she was a writing candidate, but she has not been voting in Republican in mo, in a lot of cases in the U.S. Senate. So it's with it's it's you got to set this up a little bit better with regards to this elected official because the the, the level uh, she she doesn't follow the, the strict or for that matter the, the moderate uh, Republican ideology. Okay, so she doesn't, and I, yeah, there are other controversial votes, and I do understand it. And as one newspaper put it, she's alone again. She was alone after uh, the last time when she ran as an independent, and she won. So should then, so what they are saying is they're responding to outrage. So in other words, the party should, you know, did they take a survey? Do they know what a majority of Republican voters think, or are they just getting a lot of emails and well, phone calls, which is not... Their, this is their yeah. this is their Republican committee that that right. in that district in that area. So I don't believe that they should you know reprimand her and, and throw her to the wolves by any of these imaginations. But from a distancing standpoint, yeah, I mean to bring in and, and to support a future Republican candidate uh, in the near future that that purports to to be an actual Republican, then yeah, I I, I see a distancing requirement there. What what do you what does your distancing look like? What would that look like in practice? Well, right now they're setting themselves up to to say in the in the near future, in the next election, when she comes up in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty two, to say, yeah, we're gonna we're we're not gonna support you. We're gonna support a more sure, ideologically uh, Republican candidate. And that's that's from the, that's what I see as a distancing aspect of this thing. Now, you make a very good point. Even before she was a, a write-in, I mean, she's obviously her brand, and that's why she's targeted. She is she favors abortion rights. She is certainly one of the more moderate Republicans. But is it the party's place to do something about that? Or is it just up to the voters, and should they stay out of it? If the, if she loses a primary, she loses a primary. Well, finish your thought. All right, I'll let you go. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, if you want to weigh in, again, the Economic Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. Uh, let's grab one more call in this segment to... Todd in Brookfield. Todd, go ahead. Hello? Yeah, go ahead, Todd. I enjoy your uh, filling in. Thanks for doing this. Um, I want to know your thoughts. Just curious. Why Lisa Murkowski and Collins? I understand they're squishy Republicans and close to Democrats. Why do they always seem to want to be the last to, to make public their opinion, their vote? Is it... Do you think they enjoy, they must enjoy the spotlight and the power that comes with, okay, everyone else has decided and gone on record, except for us, now we get to be the last two, or is it, do you really believe that they can't decide in three, four, five weeks? Um, I don't understand why they always want to be the last two, the dramatic two. That's where I'm, I'm confused. 
Todd, thanks a lot for the call. Now, in the case, that's what a lot of people are accusing Susan Collins of, that she was looking for the glamour, looking for the glory, and that's why uh, she made the big deal out of her production. I, I, I think in this, now, I don't know about Collins. In the case of Murkowski, it may have been a very difficult decision. Uh, got some text to get to. Let's, uh, I tell you, let's get one more call in this segment to Jason and Mequon. Jason, go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, the Republicans can't just toss her to the wolves just because of the one controversial vote that she makes. It'd be like the same thing that happened here in Wisconsin to Scott Walker. Just because you don't like what he does, you just can't recall him or get rid of him. That's what you have elections for. And if the people are too stupid to see that, you know, like somebody once said, elections have consequences. you got to deal with it. So that's where we are. Should the party, though, if the party gets the sense that Republican voters have had it with her, should they do something to make it easier to get rid of her? No, I don't. I don't believe so. That's what you have elections for. I mean, they can tell her, you know, take her aside, hold her hand, and say, "Hey, listen, you know, you're not helping us out here at all." And tell her she might want to come around at some point in time. But if she doesn't, that's what elections are for. All right, Jason. Thanks a lot for the call. Running late here. If you want to weigh in, uh, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line four one four seven nine nine one six twenty two twenty one News Radio WTMJ. 223 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. A couple of texts on this. What, if anything, should the committee, the Alaskan Republican Party, do to reprimand Lisa Murkowski because she didn't vote for Justice Kavanaugh? Should it be as anything? Should it be as light as a letter? Should it be more severe, basically, where they work to find a replacement for her? Uh, some texts on this. Why would any self-respecting woman vote for an accused sex offender, much less be punished for it? From the two, that was from the 414, from the 262, she's a rhino. Replace her with Palin. George writes, if she was a Democrat and she voted outside the lines, the Democrats would run someone against her. I would imagine West Virginia senator who voted for Kavanaugh will have some, someone run against him. Now, Joe Manchin, uh, most likely, no, I think the Democratic Party in that case, and that's an interesting point, the Democratic Party in that case does understand that Joe Manchin, you know, I think he had a single-digit lead at the time of the vote. I, I, I could be wrong, but I think that's the case. And the way to preserve that in a state that Trump won by about a gazillion percent was to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Now, it was a political calculation. I will say this about both Collins and Murkowski. They did put the politics aside. The same thing, now she would have, she would have been ostracized, the same thing, and it could have tipped the vote, but she faces a, a threat from the left. That's not the dynamic for Murkowski. So I guess can't really say she put politics aside, not to the degree that Murkowski did. So what is the right thing to do? I can't say I have the answer to that, but I can tell you what I think, and I will, in a couple of minutes. 225 News Radio WTMJ. 
227. All right, 228. News Radio WTMJ. Brewer October continues, and if you're not listening to WTMJ, you should make your way down to Miller Park for the NLCS. But how much will it cost you? John Mercure breaks down the ticket market at 450 on Wisconsin's afternoon news. So what, if anything, should the Republican Party do with Lisa Mikowski? They are considering punitive measures for her vote against Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice. I think it's a difficult call. If the party feels that its base is alienated by her, I understand the desire or inclination to do something. And a caller made a very good point about her track record. And I get that. And he kept saying, in this case, in this instance, with this elected official, it just never works that way. I think there is a tremendous danger in a party... And yes, Democrats have certainly, you know, certainly may do this in the future too. But I, I, I don't get into the whataboutism. I don't agree with punishing someone for doing what they believe is right. I think this was a tough vote. I know a lot of you disagree with that. You think the whole thing was a sham. I don't. I think there was credibility on the part of the accuser, uh, Dr. Ford. And Lisa Murkowski obviously just, just didn't know and decided to err to the side of caution. Once you open this door, punishing, well, you didn't vote the right way. I I just don't know where that stops, and I don't know how a party functions. And as a caller said, that's what elections are for. The people of Alaska can decide, and I I, I never like thumb the scale in that in that way. And I know in, in, in Wisconsin, the party does endorse. But this, I mean, this is just an all-out uh, retaliation, and I, and I don't support it, who, whoever it might be against. The preseason rolls on as your Milwaukee Bucks continue their preparations for the 2018-19 season. Uh, next up, a matchup with the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Boys of the Bucks, Ted Davis on the call. Our coverage starts with Buckshots at 6.30 tonight. So, for years now, on the radio, I would do this every once in a while. I'm not going to do it right now, for what I think is obvious reasons. I would take call on what until calls, excuse me, on what has until now been an evergreen question. In other words, I could pull it out pretty much anytime I wanted. Well, if I did it now, the calls, I ask opinions. Do you think this or this? If I did it now, <laughs> I think overwhelmingly I know what the answer would be. Over the years, oh, since 2010, I've asked the question, what do you think is going to happen first? The Packers winning the Super Bowl? Or the Milwaukee Brewers winning the World Series? I asked it earlier this year. And I, I can't, I just don't remember what kind of answers. I didn't do it on the air. I did it with just people I know. And I think at that time it was still, and this was, this, this is when this might have been. It might have been during that horrific slump. I think that's when, I think that's when I asked it for the Brewers. And the answer still was the Packers. Packers season hadn't started. The Brewers look like they may have been going into a swoon that we've 
seen all too often. I, well, clearly now, if I asked now, I, I guess I would be somewhat stunned if the overwhelming answer wasn't the Brewers. Now, because they are headed to the NLCS, doesn't mean they're going to make it to the World Series. We found that out in 2011. To me, this feels different. And you can point to a lot of different things as to why this feels different. I mean, Christian Yelich, one of the great acquisitions of all time. We talked about that earlier. But I think where this feels different is this. And you might think I'm I'm just putting too much into this. Sweeping the Cardinals to win, the, to, to earn the playoff spot, I should say. The, at that moment, it was wild card. But to, to guarantee themselves a playoff spot in St. Louis, just to me, was a statement. I mean, the, how many times has the shoe been on the other foot with that team? That was the first thing. Then continuing to win and tie the Cubs. And I'll be honest, boy, going to Wrigley to play the Cubs in a you know winner take all, to, you, know, you win the division, not take all, but you win the division, you get some rest, or you turn around and you play tomorrow. I thought that was going to be exceedingly difficult. Here's what I will say: and the Dodgers are uh, the the Dodgers are the team I thought they would be facing in the NLCS. The Dodgers are a great, well, they're, they're a very good team. I don't know if I'd say great. Right now, they're a very good team. And I think this is going to be the first time in weeks that the Brewers have a real fight on their hands. And I know none of the games were necessarily easy with Colorado. I, I get that. But I think this is going to be really, really tough. In case you're wondering... The Dodgers won the season series four to three. I think they dominated the Rockies. I thought I saw seven to two, seven two record in the uh, regular season. And it uh, there was that one the game that where did that happen? That was uh, I don't remember the score, but it was embarrassingly bad. It was during that that horrible uh, period that they were having, and they just got crushed. But in the end, it was 4-3 in favor of the Dodgers. I think this is going to be a great series. Not great if you're a Brewers fan. To me, what would be great? Another sweep. Uh, It would. You don't want to be nail-biting over this thing, right? You know. You want to get it done with. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be swept either way. Now, I, I, I'll tell you right now, if, in fact, the Dodgers ended up dominating this series, I would be really surprised. I just, I would. The Brewers are still the hottest team in baseball. There aren't many left, but they've just been so hot. I mean, oh, you know, Boston, there was an interesting situation. It's, I get it. But anyway, they're the... They just seem to me, in 2011, I thought they were a good team. This, to me, and I know it's really dangerous in mixing sports, it does feel like the 2010 Packers. The only difference is they didn't get in by the skin of their teeth on the last day. They were already in. 
but they won the division the day after the last day, which is kind of like what happened in 2010, where the Packers snuck by the Bears to make it into the playoffs, and then just, boom, they were on that run, and you felt it. Defense played great. You would like to see the offense generate a few more runs at times. They are leaving just squandered opportunity, squandered opportunity. If the the clock's going to strike midnight on a Cinderella team, which I don't consider the Brewers, I think they are a World Series contender right now, at least a year ahead of schedule. But that can catch up with you. I think it's going to be a... I think it could go seven games. I, you can't predict that in these things. Baseball, who knows? A run here or there. Really don't know. Speaking of not being able to predict things, there's a great story that I want to share with you. Yesterday was the anniversary of a dark day in Wisconsin history. But there's a bright, shining silver lining to that story that I'll bet you, you don't know. You probably don't know the dark day that I'm talking about. If you listen closely to the news, it was reported on on WTMJ. I heard Eric Bilstad talking about it yesterday. But you probably don't know the amazing story of a true Wisconsin hero and what her story is. So I'm going to tell you, in a few minutes, 2.42, News Radio WTMJ. The crew is hunting for its first World Series title, and the latest Brewers interviews are right at your fingertips. Text the word PITCH, as in I hope they pitch a no-hitter, to 414, it's PITCH, to 414-799-1620. For here, our first pitch podcast, and to hear it, and don't forget to subscribe for the latest Brewers interviews on your mobile device. I tell you, I mentioned this yesterday, I hail from the upper regions of the state, grew up in Marinette County, currently reside in the Green Bay area, it, it, you know, in the Milwaukee area. You just, well, yeah, of course everyone, it's brewer crazy. It's, you know, yeah. It's rare, and I think the Packers are helping them out a little bit in terms of uh, the way the popularity and the excitement upstate. I mean, right now, if I had the chance to buy a Packers ticket, or an NLCS ticket, well, I know what I would do. Uh, you know, the, the, the stakes are so much higher. I mean, regular season games are great. I live close to the stadium in Green Bay. It's convenient. But, no, I, I just, it's, man, it is so exciting. And I am so juiced for the series, and I'm sure you are as well. I just mentioned that I... Uh, grew up in northeastern Wisconsin, the tiny village of Coleman in southern Marinette County, which is about 20 minutes to the west of Peshtigo. Yesterday, October 8th, the anniversary of two of the worst fires in American history. Now, most of America knows about the Chicago fire on October 8th, 1871, 147 years ago. Once in a while, you'll hear a news anchor say, oh, there was also a fire in Peshtigo. In fact, in scope, loss of life, and so on, the Peshtigo fire was much, much worse. But even then, a larger metropolitan area is going to get all the attention, perhaps even more so 
then you know. There's an amazing story, and I learned this just not too long ago. My mom, who these days, uh, she's 92, and uh, you know the, the faculties, unfortunately, are, are failing her, but throughout her life, she has been fascinated with the Peshtigo fire and read all different books on it. And, and she shared some of them with me, or I, she shared all of them with me, but I chose to read some of them. She has one in the nursing home she lives in her in her room, and I picked it up recently. I did not know this. Now, part of the story I knew. This is an amazing story, and I'll bet you don't know it, at least the whole story. The governor of Wisconsin, Lucius Fairchild, uh, you know, heard of the Chicago fire, got the telegraphs, hey, we, we need to provide support. We need to provide relief to the city of Chicago. Packed up all sorts of supplies and things on a train, headed to Chicago to be a good neighbor and help, right? Lucius Fairchild didn't know, at least the scope, I don't think he knew at all at that moment, there had been a fire in his own state. Now, you may have heard the story, so they recalled the trains. There is a story behind that story. Here it goes. It was immediately apparent that Marinette Menominee and Green Bay would not be able to provide any measure of meaningful relief by themselves. Isaac Stevenson, owner of a lumber company in Marinette, was the first to send a request for aid to Madison. He sent a messenger by steamer to Green Bay on the 9th, so a boat to Green Bay, to get the telegram to Madison, and from there it was sent. His telegram was not received at the Capitol in Madison until Tuesday, October 10th. The same destroyed telegraph lines that had isolated the doomed area before the fire now meant there was no way of contacting the outside world. Once the news of the fire reached Green Bay, it was telegraphed to Madison and the other cities. Nobody knew until then. As coincidence would have it, almost all of the state officials, including Governor Fairchild, were in Chicago by this time. They're, they're, hey, this is that's they need the help. A large part of Chicago had burned on the very same evening as the land in northeastern Wisconsin on the eighth. Chicago was able to telegraph to all parts of the country as soon as its fire started, asking for relief, and the nation heard. So now, Madison finds out about what's going on in northeast Wisconsin. Enter First Lady Frances Fairchild. She took matters into her own hands. She heroically rerouted trains full of aid supplies headed for Chicago to Peshtigo. She implored the residents of Madison to send whatever blankets or warm clothes they could spare. The first relief supplies, a few train carloads of food, blankets, and clothing, were on the way to Green Bay by the afternoon of Tuesday, October 10th. Though rather insignificant in terms of the total aid that was sent to the relief of Peshtigo, the initial relief supplies showed the urgency this disaster would be handled with. Now, this, I found this, uh, just did a Google search. Firestorm at Peshtigo is where that's from. In the book that my mother has, it fleshes this out a lot more. Basically, what it does is say that she was acting governor. Now, she had no authority. She, she's first lady. She's barking out orders. She's making, you know, my, not long-term policy decisions, but policy decisions 
as they relate to the relief needed for northeast Wisconsin. It's called the Pestico Fire. It wiped out thousands of acres of, of woodland. She just took over. Now, you would never see that. I just can't imagine it happening today. And I don't know. So apparently they said the governor, I, I'm assuming, I don't know what our legislature, I didn't research. I don't know if we had a bicameral legislature that looks anything like we do today. I don't know. But I think she is an amazing story. And if Wisconsin school children don't learn about Francis Fairchild, hero first lady of Wisconsin, they should. Because it's a great, great story. Final thoughts straight ahead. 252 News Radio WTMJ.